cold-blooded monster? Complicated anti-hero? No matter how you look at the star of Anne Rice's popular Vampire Chronicles, Lestat de Leoncourt's hedonistic cravings for blood make him exceedingly dangerous. If you enjoy this episode and want to hear more like it, follow Villains Free only on Spotify. The following episode contains references to sexual abuse, suicide, and child abuse. Please exercise caution for children under 13. Just after midnight, in the heart of New Orleans' French Quarter, the mournful sounds of a sonata pour out of an open window of an upstairs apartment and into the cobblestone streets. Inside, behind a lacquered grand piano, sits a man. But this isn't just any man. He's a beautiful specimen. His perfect skin is pale as porcelain. His golden locks cascade around striking eyes. And though he appears to be not a day over 20, he plays with the skill of a virtuoso. And Devil knows he's had plenty of time to practice, because although he's flesh and blood, he's not human. He hasn't been human for over 200 years. Instead, he's centuries old, yet always young, damned to be eternally beautiful, but alone. And as the world changes, he remains frozen in time, playing his sonatas and etudes for no one, waiting to lure a companion to join him in the hell he's been forced to endure, and to repeat the cycle again and again for the rest of eternity. Such is the costly Faustian bargain one pays for youth, beauty, and immortality. But nothing is too rich for the blood of the vampire, Lestat. Good evening, my dear mortals. Please allow me to reintroduce myself. I am Alastair, and this is Villains, the podcast where we discuss the monsters and ne'er-do-wells of fiction and their real-life counterparts. If you're just joining me, last week we concluded our season on the supervillains of the Marvel Universe, where we discussed the foes of some of our favorite cape-wearing heroes. From the chaotic and mischievous Loki to the world-destroying Thanos of Titan, we examined how these complex adversaries help shape the heroes they try so hard to defeat. This season, however, we're getting a bit… spooky. Join me as we travel back in time, not to the gothic 1700s or the classic frights of 1920s horror, no, no, we're returning to an even stranger era. For the entire month of October, we're throwing it back to the 90s to discuss some of the decade's greatest horror villains just in time for Halloween. And we're starting with none other than the Prince of Vampires himself, Lestat de Lioncourt. Depending on who's telling the story, Lestat is either the complicated anti-hero or the cold-blooded monster of Anne Rice's popular Vampire Chronicles. In either role, he's delightfully amoral, a clever rogue who gallivants through the endless night of eternity, seducing and draining the blood of foolish mortals. But what makes Lestat horrifying is not his insatiable bloodlust or the way he delights in killing. 
His unique villainy is rooted in a tragic history, one that compels him to condemn others to an eternity of suffering simply to keep him company. Up next, we'll enter the goth pop realm of the 90s and meet Lestat. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Every era, it seems, has its vampire. From Bram Stoker's classic Dracula to the sparkling vamps of the Twilight franchise. But before Edward Cullen enchanted a generation of teen girls, Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles brought the mysterious world of vampirism out of the shadows of Gothic literature and into the forefront of pop culture. Though Rice published her first novel of the series, Interview with a Vampire, in 1976, her work found its true popularity in the early 90s. Fed up with the neon-wearing, yacht-rock-listening 80s, fans craved the antithesis. They were drawn to Rice's macabre world, and soon, its essence leaked out of her novels and into the zeitgeist. Her neo-Gothic sensibilities could arguably be seen in Alexander McQueen's Couture, the early films of Tim Burton, and the music of brooding bands like The Cure. And of course, enough lusty fan fiction to break the dial-up internet. Because unlike her predecessors, Anne Rice made vampires sexy. Long gone were the blood-sucking monsters of old-world folklore and the hideous, bat-eared Nosferatus. Rice's vampires were a new breed. They weren't so much primal beasts as they were ethereal beings, or as she called them, children of the night. Beautiful and sophisticated, when Ricean vamps weren't satisfying their bloodlust, they philosophized about the nature of love, evil, and their unique condition. They had dramatic names like Antoine and Marius, and an impeccable fashion sense. In her decadent yet campy prose, Rice explored their mysterious lives, and to the delight of her readers, their many erotic escapades. The world of Vampire Chronicles was darkly sensual and tormented, a blood-stained romance novel masquerading as horror fiction. For the next three decades after her debut novel, Rice expanded that intricate world through 13 separate Vampire Chronicles books and numerous crossover novels, with even more forthcoming, telling the sprawling tales of her elegant crew of vampires. And at the center of them all was Lestat de Lioncourt. 
Nicknamed the Brat Prince, Lestat is an 18th century French aristocrat turned vampire. And he carries himself as such. He's vain, petulant, and entitled. And these qualities paired with his hedonistic cravings for blood make him exceedingly dangerous. As he says in his own words, I'm gentleman death in silk and lace. And much like a dashingly dressed grim reaper, he leaves death in his wake. He kills two, sometimes three humans a night, feasting on an endless menu of strangers. Not out of necessity, but because he enjoys it. As a self-professed snob, he has a taste for blue blood and prefers to hunt in high society. There, he lures mortal aristocrats with his charm, sarcastic wit, and his ability to recite poetry on a whim or play a seemingly endless repertoire on the piano. But underneath the velvet waistcoats and the puckish grin, the start hides a tragic past. Because as much as he may seem to delight in sucking the blood of mortals with impunity, Lestat didn't choose his so-called dark gift. It was forced upon him. As a young man, Lestat ran away from home to escape his abusive father and older brothers. He fled to Paris with his best friend and lover and found work at a theater where he became a rising actor. However, his performance eventually attracted the attention of an ancient vampire who kidnapped Lestat and turned him against his will. Right after, his sire burned himself alive, leaving the fledgling vampire to navigate his new reality alone. Later, in a desperate attempt to create company, Lestat turns his dying mother and also his lover into vampires as well. However, his lover soon descends into madness and takes his own life, and his mother eventually leaves him in order to explore the world on her own. And Lestat is once again left utterly alone. Lestat's origin presents him as a tragic, sympathetic figure, but it also contains the roots of his true villainy. Because although his murderous lifestyle makes him inherently wicked, a lust for blood simply comes with the territory, the fate of every common bloodsucker. Instead, it's Lestat's isolation and how he struggles to remedy it that reveals his unique cruelty. And of all of Anne Rice's numerous installments in the Vampire Chronicles, none convey Lestat's toxic loneliness more than her debut novel, Interview with the Vampire. Coincidentally, it was also the first of her books to make it to the silver screen. The 1994 film adaptation directed by Neil Jordan was a star-studded affair. It featured performances from some of 90s Hollywood's biggest actors, including Brad Pitt, Antonio Banderas, and Tom Cruise, sporting a long blonde wig playing Lestat. But unlike most installations of The Vampire Chronicles, Interview with the Vampire is not told from Lestat's perspective, but from the point of view of one of his fledglings, Louis. In the film, Louis, played by a brooding Brad Pitt, recounts the story of how Lestat turned him into a vampire, effectively casting him in the role of his immortal companion. But Louis soon finds that the undead life wasn't for him. 
the reality of killing torments him, and he grows to resent Lestat for making him into a monster. Lestat, meanwhile, tries to persuade Louis that murdering with impunity isn't so bad. At one point, he tells him, Evil is a point of view. God kills indiscriminately, and so shall we. But alas, Louis is unconvinced and certain that Lestat has condemned him to some fresh hell. However, in a desperate attempt to prevent Louis from abandoning him, just like everyone else, Lestat does the unthinkable. He turns a child into a vampire. And the little girl, 11-year-old Kirsten Dunst, is adopted by the two undead men, transforming them into some sort of macabre family unit. But more importantly, effectively binding Louis to Lestat for the rest of Claudia's eternal life. From Louis's point of view, we see Lestat's controlling behavior and his manipulation. But most importantly, we see how Lestat's loneliness is the catalyst of his villainy. His desire for love and admiration from his companions and his intense fear that they'll abandon him is the cause of Lestat's cruelty. He'll do anything, lie, manipulate, murder, to ensure that they never leave, that they're trapped with him forever. And this pathological desire for companionship is precisely what makes him such a compelling villain. With his tragic history and tormented relationships, we can't help but empathize with Lestat. Even if he is a supernatural murderer, after all, we all want love and acceptance, and most of us fear abandonment. But watching our mortal emotions play out in the body of an eternally young and beautiful Tom Cruise is far more enjoyable than witnessing it in the nobodies who populate the real world. This, of course, is a given. But director Neil Jordan's intentions for casting Hollywood superstars as vampires went deeper than just box office numbers. As he said in a behind-the-scenes interview for the film, my feeling, having cast both Brad and Tom, was basically that, in a strange way, the world of a vampire is not that different from the world of a massive Hollywood star. You're kept from the harsh daylight, and you live in a strange kind of seclusion, and they're eternally youthful. It's an apt metaphor. After all, vampires, in a way, are the celebrities of the horror world, with their beautiful faces and piercing eyes, Anne Rice's vamps are ethereal and otherworldly. Humans, but realized in hyper-perfection. Just like celebrities. But the stars of the 1990s make the most fitting comparison. Unlike the celebs of today, who live their lives in almost full view of the public, the rich and famous of the 90s were shrouded in an atmosphere of mystique. Celebrity sightings were almost exclusively seen at red carpet events or through the lens of paparazzi cameras. And they were rare. While pop culture today is overpopulated with reality stars and social media influencers, 90s celebrity was a far more exclusive club. And much like vampires, the fame of true stars seems to live on forever. Actors like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt, who were born of 90s fame, remain some of the top-billing, highest-paid actors in the world. But celebrity culture doesn't just exhibit the mystique and glamour of eternal youth. 
we can observe the dark side of Lestat's vampirism as well. We see the same kind of isolation, toxic dynamics and cycles of abuse splashed across tabloid headlines nearly every day. Celebrity, like vampirism, is a dark gift which leaves no one unscathed. And the true life story of an actual Hollywood actor can help demonstrate why. Coming up, we'll explore the rise and fall of a child star turned abuser. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. Lestat is the paragon of the 20th century vampire the character that helped transform vamps from blood-sucking monsters of gothic literature to sexy, supernatural beings. He and his fanged friends are elegant, fashionable, and their eternal lives are full of tragedy, adventure, and seductive encounters. They're like humans, only better, more beautiful, more interesting, and in a way, a lot like our real-world celebrities. But underneath the glamour, both celebrity and vampirism is fraught with isolation, manipulation, and abuse. And perhaps no one in Hollywood knows this tragic cycle more intimately than a child star. Corey Feldman's earliest memory is from three years old. It was July, and he was on the set of a Christmas-themed commercial for McDonald's. It was the first day of his very first job. In the commercial, a chubby-cheeked, toe-headed Corey wakes up on Christmas Eve and sneaks out of his room to the living room. And there, next to the Christmas tree on a plate of cookies, he leaves a McDonald's gift certificate for Santa Claus. It's an ironic debut for a little Jewish boy, but Corey's adorable kid charm made him a hit. The McDonald's job led to dozens more. At age 7, he became the family breadwinner. By age 10, he'd shot more than 100 ads. And soon, commercials led to television. He made guest appearances on popular TV series and then small parts in blockbuster films, including the 1984 hit Gremlins. But while Corey spent his childhood in casting offices, studio waiting rooms and film sets, his home life was falling apart. His mother was emotionally and physically abusive, and his father frequently absent. And as the highest-earning member of his family, Corey was under increasing pressure to work constantly. But he channeled his family tension into his acting. And as he hit adolescence, Corey developed a new persona, going from adorably awkward kid to smart-mouthed, angsty troublemaker. Before long, his career exploded. He landed starring roles in such iconic movies of the late 80s as The Goonies, Stand By Me, and notably as a teen vampire slayer in The Lost Boys. By the early 90s, Corey Feldman was a household name and a quintessential teenage heartthrob. But though his life was seemingly glamorous, in reality, 
Corey was suffering. Without adults to depend on at home, he began seeking out role models at work. He met various producers, managers, and actors at industry events and at parties. Corey explained in an interview how these relationships would begin as mentorship. The networking, that's when you become pals with them and you get their phone numbers and you get their mom's phone numbers and the next thing you know, they talk to the moms and say, hey, I want to take Corey out to an event. This would be great for him. Let me pick him up and take him. Corey formed friendships with a number of grown-ups and eventually, a handful of these men Corey had come to know so well who he confided in and had grown to trust, betrayed that trust in the most unspeakable way. One man who befriended Corey began taking him out nearly every night. For months, he escorted him to Hollywood clubs and to Disneyland. Then, he introduced the 15-year-old star to drugs. One night, after giving Corey a cocktail of prescription pills, the man molested him. Though he wasn't Corey's only abuser, the man would be the one who would inflict the most damage on Corey's life. From there, the abuse became more frequent and the drugs more intense. Corey was introduced to cocaine, then heroin. So in an effort to numb the pain roiling inside him, he used heavily. He was sleeping all day and partying all night, always trying to satisfy his endless craving to get high. As Corey recalled in his autobiography, at night we'd have regular coke-off challenges, daring each other to see who can stay up the longest. And there were always new and different celebrities to party with. Corey Feldman was fully immersed in that glamorous, vampiric lifestyle of a Hollywood celebrity but it didn't take long until the effects of his abuse would cause him to deconstruct. At 21, Corey was arrested for heroin possession. He spent the next few years in and out of rehab, but when he finally emerged sober, his career would never match the former glory of his teen star days. After a slew of B-movies, he began to move on from acting and instead focused on becoming a multi-hyphenate. He began making music and in 2014 founded Corey's Angels, a hybrid talent management and entertainment company. The company produces Corey's music and live events, but it also provides representation to new talent in the industry, specifically young, beautiful women. According to the company's mission statement, Corey's Angels is known for creating an environment where women who have endured abuse and torture throughout their lives could live in an atmosphere free of judgment and criticism while feeling appreciated and beautiful. But the truth is far less altruistic. According to a 2015 article in Vice, the women who are managed by Corey's Angels more often than not move into his home, which he unironically calls the Feld Mansion. And as part of the arrangement, they're required to sign a contract which includes the following stipulations. Angels must be beautiful, inside and out. Angels must work out to maintain their weight. Angels must adhere to a meat-free diet. Angels must not drink alcohol. 
Angels must help keep the home and office clean. If this sounds to you like a toxic, off-brand version of the Playboy Mansion, you're not wrong. In fact, that was Corey's inspiration. As he explained in an interview, I was very close with Hef, and to me, that was just normal, because it was family, and that was the way that I viewed it, you know? I was up there literally every Sunday watching movies with Hef and Crystal and all of his girlfriends. So basically, I was raised at the Playboy Mansion. But despite Corey's misguided attempts to create a family among his angels and shield them from the abuse he endured as a young star, he, predictably, did the opposite. In 2017, in the wake of the Me Too movement, allegations began emerging from former Corey's angels that Corey had subjected them to sexual harassment, abuse, and assault. This cycle of trauma and twisted intentions mirror Lestat's story. Lestat, much like Corey, was preyed upon by an older vampire, while as an actor nonetheless, and forced into a life ridden with a darkness and isolation he'd never consented to. When Lestat's loneliness leads him to seek out Louis as a companion, he decides to break the cycle. As he tells Louis before turning him into a vampire, I'm going to give you the choice I never had. And he does. He asks Louis what he wants before turning him. And rather than abandoning him like Lestat's own sire had, Lestat helps his new fledgling navigate vampire life. Corey, similarly, attempted to overwrite his past trauma with good intentions. He hoped to create a community in which new Hollywood talent wouldn't be abused and exploited like he had been. He provided his so-called angels with a safe haven and the support he never had when he was coming up in the entertainment industry. But both vampire and celebrity ultimately repeat their respective abuses. The start, in a desperate attempt to prevent the unhappy Louis from leaving him, uses his vampiric abilities to turn Claudia into a vampire against her will, trapping both her and Louis in their dysfunctional, undead family. Corey, perhaps also out of desperation or loneliness, uses what's left of his celebrity to trap his angels in a bizarre business contract and abuse them. But there's a key difference between their cruelty. Lestat's vampirism can't be helped. It's a permanent, eternal condition after all. Combating his loneliness and ensuring he has company means creating the occasional, non-consenting fledgling. Corey Feldman's celebrity, the enabling factor of his abuse, is hardly inherent. Fame takes wild amounts of effort. After all, Corey hadn't been truly famous since he was a teenager. So why not put it all behind him, move to Kansas and live a quiet life? The answer to that question is the same reason why thousands of young people flock to Hollywood each year seeking fame and fortune and the reasons why vampires choose a blood-sucking eternity over their humanity. The answer is immortality. Coming up, we'll explore the high cost of eternal youth for vampires and celebrities alike. Now back to the story. 
Lestat's villainy is rooted in his forced transformation into a vampire, a traumatic event that left him lonely and isolated. It's this loneliness and the fear that he will be abandoned that leads him to manipulate and trap his companions, and eventually to inflict the very same kind of trauma that he had suffered. We've seen a similar cycle of abuse play out among the vampire-esque world of Hollywood celebrities, specifically in the life of former child star Corey Feldman. But, of course, this is hardly unique. We know this story. We've heard similar tragic anecdotes from and about celebrities since the term existed. From Judy Garland's drug dependence to Princess Diana's fatal car crash while fleeing paparazzi. Fame and suffering always seem to go hand in hand. It's the Faustian bargain of celebrity, just as vampires are condemned to drink human blood for all of eternity. But many would consider this a small price to pay. As cult director John Waters said, most everybody secretly imagines themselves in show business, and every day on their way to work, they're a little bit depressed because they're not. People are sad they're not famous in America. For over a century, we've been obsessed with fame. The glamour of it and the fantasy. Celebrities' lives are seen as idyllic, the embodiment of the average Joe's hopes and dreams. To the masses, famous people have everything. Money, power, beauty, and recognition. But perhaps most desirable of all is immortality. Not literally, but symbolically. According to professor, writer, and Zen teacher David Loy, our desire for celebrity is rather morbid. In David Lichty's book Death and Denial, Loy claims that when we realize that life is impermanent, we seek out fame as a way to eliminate our subconscious, or not so subconscious, anxiety about dying. As he calls it, symbolic immortality through reputation. Essentially, fame is our attempt to cheat death. This is done by creating an idea of ourselves that will live on long after we bite the dust, to transform ourselves from a mere human into an entity. In a kind of existential way, in order to fully transform into a famous entity, a celeb has to first give up their humanity as they know it. They have to die. Much like a vampire's mortal death before their transformation, once you step into the spotlight, or taste that first drop of blood, life as it once was is gone. Psychologists Donna Rockwell and David Giles have studied the effects of fame extensively. In a 2009 study, they interviewed 15 different American celebrities in order to examine the experience of contemporary fame. And, unsurprisingly, what they uncovered confirmed that age-old paradox. The one that's cursed most celebrities Fame begets suffering. They found that as soon as a person stepped into the world of celebrity, the unrealistic expectations and lack of privacy led to a kind of depersonalization or a sense that they had lost ownership of their own life. But not only did they lose a connection with themselves, other people suddenly seemed distant, separate. As a result, most of these celebrities became isolated. But in their study, 
Rockwell and Giles discovered that most every horrible, lonely reality of fame was compensated by the glamorous things we associate with it. These were the things that made it worth it. The parts of fame that Corey Feldman enjoyed, the parties, the money, the famous friends, and the parts of vampirism Lestat came to love, the power, beauty, and impunity to kill as he pleased. It's what Rockwell and Giles refer to as the ego gratification. And very likely, it's the catalyst of Lestat and Corey's spiral into abuse. Because at some point on their journey to immortality, vampires and celebrities alike lose sight of their original intentions. After years of constant ego gratification, they begin to believe that they're beyond reproach. And they do horrible things. They lose themselves in their desire to live forever. And eventually, letting go of their humanity turns them not into immortal entities, but monsters. And once the public discovers a beast lives within their midst, they grab their pitchforks. In Corey Feldman's case, according to SAG-AFTRA, the LAPD is currently investigating the public's sexual harassment claims made against him by former Corey's angels. But while no official charges have been made, repercussions have already begun. In June of 2020, in light of the allegations made by Corey's angels, formal complaints about Corey were presented to the Screen Actors Guild Sexual Harassment Committee. Ironically, Corey himself was a member of the committee, but soon enough, he was pressured into stepping down from his position. Lestat, meanwhile, received comeuppance for his villainy on a smaller, yet far more intense scope. After 65 years, the little undead family he tried so hard to keep together violently unravels. Claudia, the child Lestat transformed into a vampire, soon turns against him. As she grows older, her mind matures, but she never changes. She becomes an adult woman trapped in the body of a little girl, and the psychological dissonance is too much to bear. When she discovers that Lestat is the one responsible for turning her against her will, she becomes hell-bent on revenge. In the film, she tries to kill him on multiple occasions, first by tricking him into drinking from corpses, something that is toxic to Anne Rice's version of the vampire, and then, when Lestat comes crawling back from death, Claudia sets him on fire. But even still, Lestat keeps coming back. It seems that try as she might, Claudia just can't kill him. He's resilient, unconquerable, a truly immortal being. But although he can live forever, after Lestat returns, he's actually barely living at all. Alive, but on the verge of death, Lestat spends the next two centuries in isolation while the world changes around him. However, one night, following the smell of death, Louis discovers Lestat in the dilapidated New Orleans mansion. He's a husk of his former self, dreaming of his past glory. But despite pleading with Louis to stay with him to help him regain his strength, Louis turns his back on his former companion. Lestat, once again, is abandoned 
left to deal with immortality alone. To him, it's an ultimate torture, a fate perhaps worse than mortal death. Because here's the thing about immortality, real or symbolic, living forever doesn't mean living well. Psychologists Donna Rockwell and David Giles observed this in their celebrity subjects. As they wrote in their study, although aspiring to immortality appears to rob death anxiety of some of its power, it is experienced as relatively difficult and tenuous. Those participants who fare best in the world of celebrity assume their position as an opportunity to give back, inspire, role model, or make a difference in the lives of others. The fame is just the shell. It's meaningless in and of itself, unless there's substance. Lestat seems to learn this lesson on his own, even if it took a few centuries for the message to sink in. After Louis abandoned him, he makes a pact with himself only to drink the blood of evildoers, a tremendous gesture of humanity for a bloodsucker. But perhaps most notable is the fact that he stops his non-consensual turning of vampires. In fact, later in the Vampire Chronicles, when a lover asks Lestat to turn her, he refuses. Despite how desperately he may want immortal companionship, he knows that the dark gift isn't for everyone. Since his escapades with Louis and Claudia, Lestat's eternal existence has meaning beyond gallivanting through an endless night, killing indiscriminately. He is living selflessly and morally, structuring his life around principles rather than his bloodlust. But while Lestat has approached the verge of death on multiple occasions, only to come back and correct his ways, a celebrity, unlike a vampire, can only make so many comebacks. Lestat's villainy is all about the individual. It's about his history, his loneliness, and his desperate attempts to correct his own trauma. But what if a villain's terror doesn't hinge on identity, but anonymity? And what if their crimes aren't carried out by any single individual, but a series of people, all hiding behind one disguise? And what if you never knew who was behind the mask. Next week, we'll explore these questions with a villain who is part Hollywood horror cliché, part teenage nightmare. Join us as we continue our throwback to the 1990s and meet Ghostface, the iconic villain of Wes Craven's meta-slasher film, Scream. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Villains. You can find all episodes of Villains and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Villains for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Villains on Spotify, just open the app and type Villains in the search bar. I'll see you next time. Villains was created by Drew Cole and Max Cutler. Villains is a Parkhouse Studios original and is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Gatovich. This episode of Villains was written by Alex Garland, 
with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Alastair Murden. 